Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Charles McVitie and Canada Christian College. How'd you get to be a doctor? Am I a doctor? I feel like a doctor. Plus, what are members of the Ontario cabinet doing at McVitie's birthday party? Plus, preparing for the U.S. election. That's coming up on the podcast. Let's get to it. The Monday after Halloween, the day after Halloween, the first day back to work after Halloween, always the same thing. You feel terrible. You feel horrible. You think, I've eaten several pounds of refined sugars, and I think the only thing, the only possible thing that can correct, can, can perhaps turn things around for me is another Reese peanut butter cup. That's what's going to do it. One more. Just the, oh, they're just mini. Welcome to the program. I would prefer for throughout the course of this next hour that you refer to me as doctor. Would you please just refer to me? This is the Alan Carter program hosted by Dr. Alan Carter. It's kind of Talk nice about to rich. It. Talk about ironic. That's true. No, listen. Listen, Doug, I'm a doctor. I have a doctorate from an unaccredited university in the comparative theology of shining up your CV. That's what I have. Actually, I have a doctorate in news dissemination. That's right. I, too, am a doctor. Just like Dr. Charles McVitie. How'd you get to be a doctor? Like that line from Monty Python, how'd you get to be king? How'd you get to be a doctor? Who is Charles McVitie and why is it that I keep talking about him? Well, Charles McVitie is an evangelical leader here in the province of Ontario. He is also the leader and president of something called the Canada Christian College. He is also a friend and ally of Premier Doug Ford. When Doug Ford won the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party, it was largely with the help of Mr. McVitie and his supporters who threw their support behind Doug Ford in the later rounds of that leadership, and that put Doug Ford narrowly, narrowly over the top over Christine Elliott, who is now, of course, Health Minister and Deputy Premier. Mr. McVitie has also been described and I think somewhat accurately, as a homophobe, an Islamophobe. If you would like, you can just go and Google his name and some of the things that he has said. Things about same-sex education corrupting children. About homosexuality and pedophilia. Just, I'm not going to... You know what? I have a doctorate in news dissemination, so I ain't going to disseminate any of the things that Charles McVitie has said over the years. You can go and look it up and decide for yourself what kind of character Mr. Charles McVitie is. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I did I forget your honorific Dr. McVitie? Now, where is it that Dr. McVitie became a doctor? Turns out that Charles McVitie, the president of Canada Christian College in Oshawa, received his doctorate from the California State Christian University. Now, California State Christian University is affiliated with Victory Bible Colleges International. And neither, neither body is listed 
in a database of institutions being recognized as an accrediting agency in the U.S. in terms of education. And I take that from some reporting by journalist Marcy McDonald from her book, Christian Nationalism in Canada. And, and much of what I've taken from taken from that is from uh, a story in the Toronto Star over the weekend. I'll get more on that. But, but ho- hold on a second. I just want to get back to what I just told you. Dr. McVitie got his doctorate from a school that's not accredited. I don't understand that. I don't get it. Oh, wait a second. Yeah, I do get it. Because remember my dual doctorates? One in news dissemination, the other one in the comparable theology of burnishing your CV. I understand how to burnish your CV. You throw a doctor in there. That's how you do that. Why is all of this all important? Why am I telling you about Charles McVitie? Yes, he's a friend and ally of Doug Ford, but why am I telling you about this? Well, if you haven't heard this, let me bring you up to speed. The Ontario government has recently introduced a portion of a bill, a bill that is supposed to be about pandemic response and cutting red tape and helping businesses and need help in the midst of the pandemic. In the midst of that bill, there is an article in there, that's what they're called, a little section in there that says Canada Christian College will have the ability to grant degrees. A degree in science and a degree in applied arts. Actually, it's just a BA. It's not applied arts. I have an applied arts. I legitimately have a BAA. I have a bah. That's my degree. That's another story. So Canada Christian College is seeking the right to confer BAs and BSc degrees. And right there in that bill that has already passed second reading in the House that is supposed to be about pandemic response, it says that's what CCC is going to get to do. Now, I I mentioned about Ford and McVitie, how they're friends and allies. And, of course, this raises a bunch of red flags right away. What in the world is this doing in this bill? And didn't Charles McVitie just help you become leader and then by just extension of being the leader of the opposition trying to you know battle against Kathleen Wynne in 2018 of course you won and now you were premier today in the house the NDP stood up new revelations and they have released this this is a video message sent to Charles McVitie from Doug Ford last fall on the occasion of Mr. McVitie's 60th birthday. Hi, Charles. I'm sorry I can't make it tonight, but I do want to wish you a happy 60th birthday celebration, 40 years of community service, 36 years of faithful service at the Canada Christian College. My friend, happy 60th birthday. That is Doug Ford wishing Charles McVitie Happy 60th birthday. A happiest 60th birthday. Doc. Doctor. I don't understand that. Did I describe, by the way, thank you very much, Dr. Williams, actual real doctor, Dr. Williams. Did I mention what kind of character Charles McVitie is? Did I mention it? I will just leave it there. So, you know, what 
Whatever. You're saying, whatever. What? So I, I can't wish somebody a happy birthday? What? That doesn't make me a bad guy. I just said happy birthday. What's the big deal? My friend. Well, turns out that even though the premier couldn't make it, several members of the Ontario cabinet could make it in person to Charles McVitie's 60th birthday. And the NDP have got a hold of those photos as well and published them. And right there, I put it on my Twitter account, by the way, A. Carter Global. There's a photo of the Minister of Finance, Rod Phillips, with Charles McVitie at Charles McVitie's birthday party. And those photos, surprise, surprise, have now been deleted from McVitie's website. Here's the NDP in the House asking a question about that. In now deleted photos from McVitie's lavish birthday party last November, we see a special video greeting from the Premier and also appearances from the Chief Government Whip, the Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, and the Minister of Finance. Mysteriously, Speaker, these photos have all disappeared on their website as of last Thursday night. Speaker, do any of the ministers who attended that party know if Canada Christian College's accreditation was discussed? And if so, why have those photos disappeared? So what happened to the photos, asked the NDP, which have the photos and have published them now. Why'd the photos disappear? And was there any lobbying? Was the government lobbied last fall about Canada Christian College? Is that why? It's right there in this bill that's supposed to be about pandemic response. And I know you're saying to me, Alan, Alan, isn't Rod Phillips an MPP for the, what, Oshawa area? Can't remember his exact writing. True. And Alan, isn't it true that MPPs and cabinet ministers go to all kinds of events? Yes. That is true. The photo proves nothing. Other than what in the world, Rod Phillips, are you doing hanging out with a evangelical leader that, oh, may I just remind you what he's referred to as in a number of different places? Oh, yeah. Homophobe, Islamophobe, intolerant. Naughty, naughty. And there's the Minister of Finance right there. Hey, how you doing? Happy birthday, Dr. McVitie. Now, the government, in its defense of all of this, says this is an independent process. It's an independent process to determine whether Canada Christian College will be able to grant degrees. And it's all up to something called the Post-Secondary Education Quality Assessment Board. But... Canada Christian College on its website already says it offers something called, quote-unquote, doctor programs in psychotherapy. And Martin Redcon in The Star this weekend revealed that the College of Registered Psychotherapists of Ontario has repeatedly turned down applicants who rely on their degrees in Christian counseling from McVitie's school, basically saying, this school is not up to snuff. And echoing what I have been saying repeatedly on this program about a schism within the Ford caucus and within the Ford cabinet. Man, you should see those PC cabinet ministers and those PC caucus members just squirm when they're asked about McVitie. What, what are you doing supporting McVitie? Squirm! Oh my goodness. 
Here is a quote in Martin's column, Martin's story on the weekend, and it is, I will warn you, this is an unnamed source. Quote, caucus was not in support of this. A number of us flagged it well before the legislation was introduced, said one progressive conservative MPP. It made no sense. We warned him it would be a PR disaster. A PR disaster is precisely what the Premier has on his hands right now. Why is it in the legislation before this board, the Post-Secondary Education Quality Assessment Board, that's the PCAB. Oh, man, I got PCAB all over me. Man. That's going to leave a stain. So why, why would we put it in a bill that has already passed second reading in the House when this independent process is not complete. I tell you what, it stinks. It smells a little. And I don't need to be a doctor to know that. Uh-oh, we got some breaking news just coming in, this breaking news. Uh, the Minister of Health, uh, Christine Elliott, has just dropped this like, like somehow we all knew this, but Christine Elliott has just announced that Dr. David Williams, the lead medical officer of health, the guy that we take all of the advice from and that people say, I don't understand what you're talking about all the time whenever he talks, news is now he's retiring as of next year. I don't understand that. I, in the midst of a pandemic? I don't understand that. You're going to, in February, Dr. David Williams will retire. I don't understand that. Well, I... I guess maybe it's time in the middle of a pandemic. I don't understand that. I okay, all right, cut it out. Can we can we draft Bonnie Henry? Is she what is is she an unrestricted free agent? The British Columbia Medical Officer of Health, Hinshaw in Alberta. What's how much is left on her contract? I'm, can I'm, we get I'm begging now? Because I think. I think we might be able to do something about the communication skills for our next medical officer of health in the province in the middle of a pandemic. Pandemic. I was walking into uh, the closet here where I broadcast in Don Mills at the Global News Factory. It's a news factory is what it is. Uh, And I do this radio show from a, a small audio booth. It's essentially a closet. Actually, my closet's bigger. But uh, it's on my way in here, uh, I walked past uh, a camera guy, a, a camera operator was on his way out to do the thing. And, you know, uh, journalists, we have dark senses of humor. And, and he just, he said to me, he said, um, you, uh, you prepared for the Civil War? You ready? You got to be kidding me. And on the eve of the U.S. election, I think there's a lot of black humor just like that. And some of it is not a joke. As we look forward to the U.S. election and what will happen tomorrow and what we can expect in the first couple of hours after the polls close and in the days beyond. And what should we expect as Canadians and what should we expect our government to do, especially if, coming out of Tuesday, we don't have a clear result. And that is a very, very strong possibility as we read the numbers and we know what's happening with voting and all of that sort of thing. 
To talk about it further, I am pleased to welcome to the program, Brennan Levine. Welcome. Uh, what do you expect in terms of how soon are we going to know? You think we're going to be able to call this thing on a Tuesday night? I think that we, I'm actually fairly optimistic. I am ready for uncertainty, and I think everyone in North America should be ready for uncertainty. Um, but I actually do expect that by early, if not in the late hours on Tuesday, then by early on Wednesday, we may have a presumed winner. Um, the problem is, is that that doesn't completely get rid of uncertainty. But let me give you the scenario that I think is actually quite likely to happen, but only in a very particular circumstance, right? Right now, the battle based on the polls is really around about six to eight states right now in the U.S., okay? All of those states were states that Trump won in 2016. In all of them, the race is more or less tied based on the polls. If Biden is winning in several of those states. He doesn't even need to win all of them. He just needs to be leading in several of those states. And some of those key toss-up states, we're actually going to get a nearly complete picture of their election returns relatively early. Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. So if Biden has won all or many or is leading in all or many of those states, two things we can presume, which is if he's doing that well in Georgia, he's probably done really well in Michigan and Pennsylvania. <laughs> so, and the second one is, is that um, if, if he's doing well there, well, he's going to be doing in, well in a lot of places. Michigan and Pennsylvania are two key states where it will be several days probably until we have a really good idea of what has happened, unless, of course, Biden has done even better than the polls suggest. So if, of course, if Biden does well enough in some of these southern states, we won't need to wait for the returns coming in from Michigan and Pennsylvania. For example, Trump, if, if yeah. Texas, if Texas, not not that everybody's sort of got Texas is almost in a kind of a move. I don't know which way it's going to go, but it probably looks like it's still at least this election going to go Republican. Right. It, it is very close. If Texas goes Democrat, like, OK, we, we know now people may be saying, well, we still have to wait for all the votes to be finished counting and we can't be sure because some of these states are really close. But the analysts will be able the pollsters, the analysts, probably the media outlets will be able to say if Biden has won Texas, it looks like that Biden has won. Whether that means that his opponent will concede as per American tradition, I don't know. Um, and some of that's going to depend on what they think their legal options are in terms of going to the courts and having some sort of replay of 2000. So, um, yeah, a number of those key states that were won by Trump and Trump in normal election years should republic and other republicans should expect to win but the democrats are running very competitively if not actually ahead in some of those states so that's one scenario those of us who would like to sleep right <laughs> just knowing what the outcome is um that's the best case scenario and i want to now emphasize though that we won't know that information until really late in the night 
And then there's other states that because of the high number of absentee ballots that are not allowed to be counted until either tomorrow during the day or not until polls actually close, that those states we will have to wait longer for for any sort of clear picture to emerge. And the question simply is, is will we have a good idea about who won without waiting for those states? So I may be a little optimistic or wishful thinking about how much sleep I'd like to get. Um, So if I'm more of a realist, we probably should be looking at close to the end of the week uh, until we have an idea. Um, But again, that may be a presumed winner uh, unless, as per American tradition, um, the networks and the losing candidate says, okay, we've looked at these numbers and we don't see very many opportunities for us to realistically think that given all these outstanding votes, that we're going to win enough of them to change what appears to be an insurmountable lead. I'm speaking with Renan Levine, who's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. And I think if we were to gauge the conduct of Donald Trump in the last four years, of the last six years, I, I, I think we could fairly safely surmise that a concession is probably, no matter what happens, a concession is probably not coming Tuesday night. Yeah, I'm skeptical. Uh, One of the things that happened over the weekend um, was that um, one online media outlet reported that the president was um, seeking to be able to declare victory if he was ahead, just ahead Right. So before the networks declare a winner, but just being ahead, he would declare victory. And in response, the president and his team denied that report, but then said uh, almost as much that um, they would not declare prematurely, but they were ready to send in the lawyers as soon as possible after the polls closed in a number of states. Uh, well, the, the lesson of 2000 has to be in everybody's mind. That, that's the lesson of Al Gore, which is uh, under no circumstance concede unless you are absolutely certain. Yeah, it, and it's incredible to me that how America has changed in 20 years, right? Gore told his legal team, okay, enough is enough. And, you know, Part of the way he saw his role in the process was saying, I think the odds of continuing to fight are not great in my favor. And for the sake of the country, I would rather just offer a gracious concession. Uh, And to give Al Gore eternal credit, when people bring it up now and they say, oh, we wish you had been president, he always smiles and says, I would have made other mistakes (laughs) uh, compared to George W. Bush. So um, this, though, in many ways is bigger than Florida because we're talking multiple states, right? That was just one state um, that there was a legal battle over. And if you take Florida and then multiply it to several states, and all of the states have different rules about counting. And we saw this last week. The Supreme Court um, ruled in favor of you know, one party on this in this state, but against that party on another state, even though from a casual observer, it looked like it was the same question because the laws vary between the states and the dynamics between the governor and the state legislature vary. So this really could be a mess, even if, I am very afraid, 
that there does appear to be a presumed winner uh, or a winner that based on the ballots that have been counted slash have been cast um, makes it really clear who, in fact, is the winner. And Donald Trump has a really narrow path to victory. Unless the polls are horribly, horribly wrong, he really needs to just sort of eke out a narrow win in the electoral college. And so that's really where a lot of, you know, the concern is, is that we know he's not going to win the popular vote. And we know millions of Americans have cast their votes in record numbers. And if there's going to be interference from Trump and the Republicans to try to minimize which of those votes get counted, um, there's going to be some huge long-term implications and short-term implications because we won't know who's president for a while. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Brennan Levine, getting ready for an all-nighter on Tuesday. Appreciate it. Brennan Levine, professor of of political science at the University of Toronto. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Are you worried about your digital identity as more and more in parts of our lives move online? The Ontario government saying that it's going to do all kinds of things to be able to get your identity and get your information uploaded and digitized and e-health. Remember e-health? Remember when that was a thing? That was, oh, those were the simpler times, right? E-health when we were just blowing money left and right for a, you know, digital health records that still don't exist. You ever been to your doctors lately? Why don't we just look that up on the computer? All my de- oh, they're not all there. Oh, well, I guess, I guess maybe we should ask the government back for some of our taxes. Well, that's not going to happen. But what's going on in terms of IT and your so-called digital wallet? How safe is it? Tony Anscombe is the chief security evangelist for ESET which is a software security company. Welcome, Tony. Hey, hello, Alan. How safe is your identity when we start talking about, you know, your so-called e-wallet? Well, I think we need to firstly clarify that Ontario uh, is committing to uh, talk to industry, aren't they, in January, so in 2021, and come up with the best solution of how to create digital identity and how it would actually work. So at this moment, it's a consultation, I believe, within industry. Uh, but in answer to how safe could it be, well, I think there are actually some really good examples of places in the world where it does work. And one such country who are very digital is Estonia, where everybody has a digital identity. Well, so back me up here, because maybe I am, you know, when I say digital wallet, then maybe that's not clear. What do we mean by digital identity in this context? Well, so I, the, firstly, there's a difference between a digital wallet and a digital identity. I think that the, the two terms are, while closely related and not the same, a digital wallet is where, somewhere where you might keep your cryptocurrency, so your bitcoins and such like. Uh, but a digital identity means it creates your persona and your authentication in a digital form. And typically that will be encrypted and it will be digitally signed. And you'd have to value, you'd have to go through a series of validations to be able to create it to start with. And so within that identity, does then that, does other information then attach itself to that digital identity? So, for example, within the identity, you would have your social uh, social insurance number. 
your driver's license, maybe your birth certificate, maybe a marriage certificate, so that when required to produce documentation that sometimes you're asked for, that's all held within your digital identity. And and what is the industry, uh, where is the industry right now in being able to successfully encrypt it so that it cannot be hacked? Well, like I say, there's there are good examples in the world where governments have introduced digital identity and they've done it in a rigorous and secure way. It depends how it's implemented. So a good example is, for example, you know the SIM card in your phone, that little card thing that has your phone number on it, that if you, you know, you sometimes, if you're changing handset, you need to move the SIM card from one phone to another. Um, in countries, for example, like Estonia, the carrier actually binds your identity to the SIM card. So actually, that piece, that little piece of card, is is a special card in some countries, where you actually carry your identity uh, on a mobile device. But let me throw a question back to you, Alan. Uh, and you know, social insurance number is used as identity validation in lots of instances, isn't it? Uh, and do we all accept that actually, as an identifier, it's a broken system because of data breaches? Right. So the thing that we have now uh, is broken. So if we flip that maxim on its head, which is if it's broken, fix it. Exactly. And fixing it with uh, a robust system that puts encryption at the forefront, you know, at, at the core, and actually allows you to do a lot more. So you could potentially move to a, a true e-voting system. You could uh, make medical records more portable, you know, use e-prescriptions, uh, etc. And even if it went further, you know, and I may be talking years, years away, uh, a digital identity, a government digital identity, maybe even could work with banks to validate identity when you ask for a bank account. You talked about Estonia, the country of Estonia. I wonder in the Canadian system where we have, you know, separation of powers, whether, you know, the federal government does some things, your health records obviously are provincial, so on and so forth. Does it make sense that here we have Ontario saying, okay, we're going to consult industry leaders. Should this not be happening first on a national level? I would completely agree, Alan, that actually this should be a nation uh, issue rather than a state issue. Uh, because you know, if you move from one state to another and you're using a digital identity in one, realistically, you want to be able to use the same identity in the next. So firstly, you don't want states having different systems. And realistically, it only works you know, truly in harmony when actually it's a national program. Well, it's interesting. I, do you think that this is something that realistically we will see? I mean, you know, I, I began this segment talking about, you know, e-health and the promise of health records in the province of Ontario being all digitized, and we have yet to see that, and what are we, we're more than a decade, decade and a half before, since that was announced. I mean, give me a timeline when you think this might be real. Well, because there are good case studies uh, in other places in the world where this has been implemented uh, in uh, a good fashion, then actually I do believe that it's a realistic project, but as we all know, uh, I can be um, just as just as dismally thinking as you are. I think there of sometimes government bureaucracy and 
uh, and red tape some kind, sometimes can hamper these types of projects and cause them to be delayed. It depends on the motivation within the government departments to do it. Tony, great talking to you. It's a fascinating subject. I appreciate that very much. Good to be here, Alan. Thank you. That is Tony Anscombe, who is Chief Security Evangelist with the security software company ESET. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.